our Old Testament reading and the text for our sermon this evening. Psalm 11. God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, let's give ear to it as the Lord speaks to us. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked, and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that does endure forever and ever. It, like you, is transcendent. It's not culturally bound. It's not geographically limited because it proceeds from your mouth. It pertains to all of life, everywhere, at all time. Lord, help us this evening as we read this passage again, as we consider it, that we might indeed leave this place as the psalmist with our confidence in you, running to you for our refuge. We do pray this in the wonderful name of our Savior, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, last week we, in looking at Psalm 8, we considered the first verse in the original text, our uh, heading to chapter 11 as it was to chapter 8 to the choir master, and it bears repeating that uh, here we're reminded when we read to the choir master, and as I said last week, the choir master of the book of Psalms has uh, no resemblance to the choir director or choir master of a, of a choir or in a church or anywhere else these days, uh, very different animals. The only similarity would be in the fact that they both would have known music, but beyond that, zero mainly because the prophetic nature of the choir master and his work, as we saw that last week. When you think of it, however, it shouldn't surprise us that God uh, chose, in this instance, as with the last, to breathe out his word through David. A number of the Psalms are attributed to David, a number of which are uh, have no attributes to it, are concluded to be David's because of some historical uh, 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 mention in the context that would, that would relate it to David. Uh, David is uh, 
the man that it was said that he was a man after God's own heart. He was a prefigurement or a type, Old Testament type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it shouldn't surprise us that much of the revelation that we read in Scripture, both from those wonderful historical narrative books concerning the time of Israel and his, his uh, boyhood and his kingship and the kingdom that was under his rule and reign, and then the Psalms that he wrote, that so much of the Old Testament revelation would have been through this man who was a man after God's own heart. It also shouldn't surprise us that uh, it was the establishment of it through the choir master so that it could be established and set forth for the congregations to remember, for them to learn. That's one of the reasons we sing the Psalms is uh, in our Reformed tradition, we've always sung the Psalms. We've Now, I, I realize some of you grew up in Presbyterian churches where uh, that had, had been lost, and that's unfortunate because uh, the Reformed tradition and Presbyterian tradition has always been uh, established. When it believes the Bible, it's been, been established in the singing of the Psalms. Uh, might be a hint to you that if your, your Presbyterian Reformed church didn't sing the Psalms much, that you might not have been in a Bible-believing Presbyterian church. But uh, it is a, a marvelous part of, of our tradition because it was a part of the New Testament tradition, Jesus uh, singing the Psalms. And, uh, and so it shouldn't surprise us that the Lord gave his revelation through holy men like David, but he established it then for the church's use in perpetuity through men of prophetic powers as well, such as the choir masters. That's one of the reasons I said there's no similarity between the choir director today of a church or a choir master of, of a church because they're not operating as prophets. They're not operating as men who give prophecy to the church. We do, and we should also take note of this, that as we look at these kind of passages, uh, it shouldn't surprise us that uh, that this revelation that's been established once and for all and uh, is settled in the heavens, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, uh, it shouldn't surprise us that then we do sing them. We, we love God's Word. We love to read it. We love to speak it. We love to sing it. Well, as we think on that, moving from that point, we're also reminded in this psalm and psalms similar to it, which this will be a a sample of, uh, we're reminded of the manifold displaying of, of God's attributes. We touched on one of those attributes, the sovereignty of God, this morning. And tonight we'll, we will see how God's attributes are, uh, are brought into this psalm, but, but also how uh, man's life is spoken of in these passages so vividly. Uh, the scriptures are like that. You know, it's one of the great arguments for the God-breathed nature of scripture that uh, it's not a fairy tale sort of book. You know, everything doesn't always turn out well. Everyone's not nice and pretty. Uh, you know, even the westerns I grew up on, you had the perfect white hat man and the imperfect, totally black hat man. 
right? And the white hat man could do no evil, could do no wrong. That's one of the beauties of Andy Griffith. Uh, he's the white hat man that does a lot of wrong. Have you ever noticed how Andy could lie at the drop of a hat or no hat at all? Well, that was kind of refreshing. Not that he lied, children. Lying is not refreshing. But to see that a man who stood for right and good could, could make mistakes. Because sometimes we fail to represent man that way with all of his warts and pimples and cancers and the like. But the Bible paints life uh, in technicolor, if you will. It, it, it paints us in all of our fallenness. But then God's always contrasted to that in all of his beauty and perfection. This passage talks about some of man's imperfections. It talks about God's righteousness setting at odds the unrighteousness and wickedness of, of man and the righteousness of God. Psalm 11 is about two, two things primarily. It's about God being the shelter, the only shelter for sinners. But then it's also about the fact that this life is full of tests and trials. This, this is not a book in general, the Bible, and this certainly is not a book of the Bible, the Psalms more specifically, but even more specifically, this is not a chapter that, that would suggest rose-colored glasses are in order for Christians or for anyone. Because it talks about man's trials and temptations. And so uh, that's led uh, Palmer Robertson to say that Psalm 11 is all about tests. And that's perhaps why it's generally not listed among people's favorite psalms. You know, you ask someone, what's your favorite psalm? Well, I dare say that Psalm 5 and Psalm 11 probably aren't two that show up on the the scale very often. And here, one of the reasons is, A, it talks about, boy, life's hard. But it also says some hard things we don't like to deal with. God hates the wicked. Doesn't say, as Psalm 5 doesn't say, God hates the sins of the wicked. And you know, for a culture that's been brought up on and I'm talking about not just a church culture, but a culture at large. God is love. Because you hear the most irreligious people out there. Wouldn't have a thing to do with church. Wouldn't have a thing to do with the Bible. But they love to say, God is love. And you Christians talk about hell all the time. And you talk about people dying and going to hell. You talk about sin. God is love. Don't you know that? And then you read a passage like Psalm 5. And you read Psalm 11 and it says God hates the wicked. And that's tough. So it's maybe not a favorite passage for a lot of people, but perhaps it should be. Well, let's look at it. Two, top, two, two points. It falls beautifully into two main points as, uh, as the previous Psalms have. Uh, into two, three, or four points, but nice along stanzas, one through three, and then four through seven. And the first one is this. There is a temptation for we as humans to follow 
a human course of life. In other words, it's easy for us to, to take the plans of men and follow them. We saw this morning that it doesn't matter if you follow the plans of men. God, in the end, His purposes will be, will be what's effected. That's what will happen. That's what will come to pass. He will use our crooked ways to bring His ways about. But here in these first three verses, we see that there is indeed a temptation. Whether we follow it or not, the temptation is still there. And uh, the temptation is that we not follow the Lord, that we not rest in Him, we not take refuge in Him, that we don't trust in Him. The, the advisors, and it doesn't matter really how you read the advisors here in uh, chapter 11, uh, the advisors of David are saying, David, you need to go. You need to leave the holy mountain. You need to flee from here. Like a bird, you need to get out of here. And it seems that they are saying this in the light of David having said something like this. I'm not leaving. I trust in the Lord. God put me here. God can keep me here. You notice how it begins? David says, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? And then the quote comes. David says, this is what you're saying to me. You're saying you need to leave, David. You need to get away. There are people out there with, with wickedness in their minds. They have their bows set. They have the arrows strung. They are ready to shoot you. And they are planning, they're plotting, and darkness is coming. And besides, there's no law of the land that's going to stop them from it. The foundations have been shaken. Justice is not going to be had in this case, David. Now, there are some commentators who say this is obviously enemies tempting David. It's, it sounds more like to me like well-meaning friends. David, you're the king. You need to leave here. We don't know exactly when in his life this does take place. Nevertheless, the point is, they're saying, David... It's one thing for you to say, I believe God's sovereign. It's one thing for you to say that God will take care of you. It's one thing for you to say God is... But, but think about it, David. God gave you good brain. God gave you good brains. And you need to use all the noodles God gave you. You need to, you need to avoid this. And we'll see what David, how he responds... But there will be those people that call on us to desert our post, to leave our good deeds. The advisors are urging him to flee. William Swan Plummer, those of you who are able to be here on Wednesday night, know that we've been working through one of his books, Vital Godliness, Treatise on Experimental Religion and Piety. It's one of the great books on, on uh, experimental Calvinism. Uh, Plummer also wrote a massive commentary on the Psalms. And it's, uh, it's a very fine commentary on the Psalms. And in there, Plummer makes uh, this comment. He says, Any advice to desert a post of duty is unwise and wicked. Any advice to desert a post of, 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 of duty is unwise and wicked. He goes on to say concerning David, had he left his post, it would have been an act of cowardice. And it's never, ever right to be a coward. 
Well, Plummer's right. For David to have left the city, to have left his post, would have been wrong. For them to advise him to leave was wrong. Because you're basically saying the wicked are going to win. David, you don't have human support enough to win. And David has already said, but the Lord's my refuge. The Lord is my refuge. These advisors base their advice apparently on the instability of everything around him. Notice that uh, you should flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, David, what can the righteous do? What can you do if everything's coming apart around you? If the laws of the land are being disobeyed, if the laws of the land are being rewritten, what can you do as a righteous man, David? And there's a word in this to us. Our response should be like David's. We'll see that response. We could look around us in our country. We could look first outside of our country and in lands where the foundations have already been destroyed. There is no rule of law. We look in our own country where the rule of law seems to be be thumbed at. No one thinks there really is a point to this. We have constitutional authorities who say that the Constitution needs revising. No one wants to admit that there is a a law in this land that ought to be followed. And we could very easily say, well, we're just going to give up on this. But we, like David, ought to be committed to staying right where God put us and doing what God would have us do. That's what we see in the second part of this passage, verses 4 through 7, is the confidence to follow divine revelation in life. Rather than following human revelation, human advice, be willing to follow divine revelation. And it starts with believing that the Lord really is a shelter. He really is a a refuge. He really can be counted upon. He's not the figment of imagination. He's not made up that he is God over all. He is sovereign. The Lord, David responds, the Lord's in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In other words, David's saying, yes, things here on this earth may be shaken. Things on this earth may even be cracking under our very feet. But the Lord is not subject to that. He's not going to falter just because the foundations of our society are, are, are broken. He's above all that. He's transcendent. Yes, he's eminent. He's active in our culture, in our society. But he's not, he's not subject to failure because the structure has been compromised. He's above it. He's in the heavens. That's where your good theology comes in real handy. When you know what you know, the Bible teaches about God, 
and you know it's true because God said so, not only in his word, but he said so in your heart. You know it, and it'll keep you from doing a lot of dumb things. It'll keep you from compromising. When you ought not to compromise. David says the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. In other words, this is you think this is news to God that the foundations are crumbling? He sees these things. He knows everything. Do you think his, his eyelids are closed? No. He's, he's looking at everything. He's testing everything. He's, he's everything about the children of man. He's, don't you know he made us? That's the point of the children of man. This is not just an address concerning believers of this great God. This is, this is wider than that. He made the children of man. Don't you think he knows these things? He cares about these things? He's concerned about these things? Of course he is. So that's David's response. So what? God's in heaven. He knows all about it. He made it all. It's not going to fall apart until he says so. By the way, sometimes, and we see this throughout biblical record of history. We've seen it at other times in the course of history since Revelation concluded. Sometimes God allows and brings to pass the failing of a culture in order to promote his own agenda. Now, right now, you should be saying, no, not sometime, all times. He always does. When we see something fail, it's with God's purpose in mind to accomplish His divine, holy, decreed purposes. So when we see something fail, that should, yes, it may sadden us if we see a certain cultural distinctive fall by the wayside that we think is holy and good and ought to be maintained, we should be saddened by that. But we should also know that something good is being worked out of this by our great God. When we have men, women elected to political positions that we know are not good because of the things they stood for, the platform upon which they stood, we don't stop and say, oh man, there goes the the whole cake. We've lost it all. God's still in heaven. He's still orchestrating his perfect will. He can use wicked men and women as well as he can use good and godly men and women. And he'll receive the glory for it. He's in heaven. He's in his holy temple. He's not threatened by any of this. Notice notice that our confidence is not in princes nor in men, but in God. This is, a, this is a recurring theme in the scriptures, isn't it? Do not put your confidence in armies of men. Do not put your confidence in armies with lots of horses. Do not put your confidence in men who have silver tongues. Do not put your confidence, and on it goes. And Psalm 146 is all about that. And we sing it, selection 57 of our Trinity hymnal. We sing these words, put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He shall die to dust returning, and his purposes shall end. 
That's how our attitude should be formed toward the princes of this world. And while I'm speaking on this, and this is, again, you know, two plus years now, this about as political as I get. Our salvation as a nation doesn't depend on this person or that person being put in office. That doesn't mean that we don't strive to do right and put best people in offices. But we're not counting on good men. The state of South Carolina over the last few years has had a number of PCA ruling elders serving in Congress and Senate. Some of you may know that. Some of you may not know that. One of them has stood the test. Two of them have become embarrassments. And people are so distressed. What did you expect? That a man would remain perfect throughout his life? Put no confidence in princes, nor in man depend. How does the psalm go on? How do we sing it? Over all, God reigns forever. Through all ages, he is king. Unto him, your God, O Zion, joyful hallelujahs sing. That should be our response. And that's David's response. He says, our Lord is in heaven. He is in the holy temple. We're not going to count. I'm not going to count on on my ability. I'm not going to count on your ability as advisors. The Lord's eyes see all this. Our confidence not only in God over man, our confidence knowing full well that our God will place his people in difficult places sometimes. Our confidence is in this, that God will place his people in difficult places sometimes. That should be part of our confidence in God. Just know he's going to put us in hard places. What does it say? The Lord tests the righteous. Now, the way we might put it is the Lord will put us to the test. Some translations read the Lord proves his people. But putting to the test really gets at it better. The Lord will put us to the test. The Lord wants us to be spiritually toned. He wants our muscles, our spiritual muscles to be toned like an athlete coming to the weight room over and over. Or as, as summer's upon us. and every, every boy knows that summer is a time to go barefoot, right? It's barefoot time. And you come to the end of the summer and those feet are calloused and filthy, dirty, stained. And my boys come to the bed at night sometime. We sit down to do evening family worship time. And I will, before I think about the stain factor, will say, go wash your feet. We just came. They've been scrubbed. Lava won't even take it off. Some of you don't know what lava is. If you don't, your parents really ought to introduce you to lava. Lava is a good thing. But it won't even take summer stain off of a boy's calloused feet. The Lord wants us to have those tough feet. Spiritually tough feet. He wants us to have spiritually toned muscles. He wants our hands to be calloused because of the the, the work. You remember what the Lord says? That a man is not fit for the kingdom that puts his hand to the plow and then turns back. 
If any of you have ever worked the plow or worked a hoe or worked a shovel very long, you develop those calluses right across here. And occasionally there's a blister. But the hands get toughened up and by the end of the job and end of the summer, if you've been working out, digging ditches or hoeing the garden, whatever you've been doing by the end of summer, you don't have blisters anymore because your hands are calloused. The Lord puts us to the test so that we become that way. Not hardened. We're not talking about calloused hearts here. We're not talking about stiff-necked in a hardened sense. We're talking about toned up. We're talking about battle-ready. Remember what I prayed earlier. We're, we're, we're looking forward to the church triumphant, but we are now the church militant. This is not about rose-colored glasses. and This is not about living easy life. And as we come up this week and next Sunday as the presentation's made, some of us are going to step back and say, you know, we as a people may have to make some sacrifices to have what we have on that hill out there. And that's okay. It'll be the Lord toning up our spiritual muscles. It'll be the Lord giving us some good calluses so that our hands will stay at the plow and not look back. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy when we're met with trials, knowing that trials produce good things in us. Turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 5. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now I'll tell you, a lot of us would like for Paul to stop writing right there. We've been justified. We have peace. We have peace, we have faith, we have faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope. That's where we'd love the Christian life to just level off right there, right? Peace, rejoicing, lots of faith, hope. But listen, verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Do you get that series there? Yes, there's peace. Yes, there's hope. Yes, there's rejoicing. But there's also hard times. God working all of this together for us so that we might be able to enjoy the hope and have a true perspective on biblical hope. Notice, notice again, 
how that psalmist comes back once again to this, this theme. God is a refuge. God is a refuge. He started with that and said, you know, how can you say to me, if God's my shelter, God's my refuge, how can you say, desert? How can you say, run away? And then he comes back, in the very last verse, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. You know, one of the wonderful things as children is going home where it's safe. And I realize there are children who don't have that kind of home life. And I'm, I'm sorry and I'm sad about that. But for me and for many of you, home is shelter. Home is refuge. And you'd go home and you knew it was safe. And you looked forward to seeing your mom and dad's face. Right? And if you got there and mom and dad weren't there, you didn't see the face. Shelter was not quite as... Enjoyable. It wasn't quite a safe feeling. Do you remember those days, adults? Something might have happened. You got dropped off from Little League practice and mom or dad hadn't quite got back to the house yet and there you are at home alone. The refuge was not the house. The refuge was the face, the presence of your mom and dad who you knew would protect you. You knew they had good things to say. You knew they had good things for you. Here the psalmist says, the upright shall behold his face. Now there's a little something here that we don't quite get in the English. We don't, we've, we, we don't have the equivalent for this, the, the, the ability to communicate this, but it's, 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 it's really... The upright shall behold his singular faces. So we just translate his, because it's singular, face. Because that, that works in English, right? You got to, a, a single has to be matched with a singular. You can't put a single and a plural together very easily without some confusion. So we don't do that. But the fact is... The upright shall behold his face. I don't want to belabor this, but I, I'm of the opinion, as are most of the, of the commentators who take the scriptures at face value as being God's breathed word, that when we have a passage like this, like we have in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image, that we have here a very subtle reference to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to what J.A. Alexander says. Most probably, it was intended, this, his faces, it was intended to express the fullness of perfection in the divine nature, not without a mystical allusion to the personal distinction in the Godhead. In other words, he says in the Hebrew, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have any doubts but what it meant to communicate the triune nature of our God. So David concludes that we ought to have confidence in our God. He's a great refuge. We go there, we find his face. We see his wonderful face. You remember back in Exodus, we, we saw this as well and, and had to do with 
with the presence of the Lord, coming into the presence of the Lord. And here David is certain of that. No matter what happens, no matter what happens, if I stay on this holy mountain and the Lord has designed for me troubles and suffering that I'm to endure, it will produce hope for me. And I will see the face of my God. His presence will be sufficient for me. His presence will ultimately be with me. We saw in the book of Ruth how wrong it was for the family to leave Zion and go off into a foreign land. Why? Because that place near Zion, on Zion, is where God promised to bless his people. They had no reason to hope that God would bless them off in Moab. They had every reason to think he would bless them in Zion. You have no reason. Covenant children, listen to me. As you grow up and you go off to college perhaps or you go out into the workplace, you have no reason to believe God will bless you apart from Zion, God's holy hill, the church. Don't get too smart. Don't move away from God's place because this is where God blesses his people. This is where he dispenses his blessing through his church to his people. David knows that. David's staying put. And he says, all hell may break loose around me. And the crumbling foundations may actually just fall into the, into the earth. But I'll not leave because I want to see the face of the Lord. He is my, he is my refuge. By the way, he is right where he's always been. He's on his, in his holy temple, on his holy throne. There's one sad note here. We have to reckon with this, not at length, but just to take note because one of the reasons we ought to stay put, one of the reasons we need to stay fixed on our mission is the church to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of crumbling foundations because the wicked need the gospel. We don't leave it because it's crumbling. We stay because it's crumbling. Look what it says. The Lord tests the righteous. I didn't continue reading earlier because I wanted to come back to this point. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Because we know God acts perfectly just toward his enemies... And we know what the only remedy for them is. What's the remedy for the wicked? What's the hope of the wicked against this God, this holy, just God? The only remedy is the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. Right? So instead of forsaking the public square, we ought to be there with the gospel. Instead of running because the foundations are shaking under our feet, we should, we should stand boldly knowing we're as safe there as we are anywhere in this world. You can't quote those words of, of General Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson too often. Why do you stay here with the lead flying all around you? I'm as safe here as I would be at home in bed. Our days are numbered, folks. 
we're as safe on a shaky foundation out in the American culture today proclaiming the gospel of God's grace, the Lord Jesus Christ, to a needy, wicked world as we would be sitting in our home. In fact, we would be disobedient to God and liable to His strictures if we were to go off and hide ourselves in some little monastery someplace. Unless we're out there on the shaky foundation, we're not safe at all. We're safe there because we're doing His work. We're doing His will. We're proclaiming His grace to people who need to hear it because it's the only answer. It's the only hope they have against raining coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and scorching wind being their portion. Our God would have us stand firm. Our God would have us come to Him for refuge and for shelter. Our God would have us behold His face, His holy character, and know that He is good, that He does good things for His people. He'd have us proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the wicked so that they might not taste His wrath. Those are the lessons of this passage. Not to follow the ways of men, but to follow with confidence the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for displaying these truths in such a wonderful way. We trust that your servant has been faithful, has communicated well, that your spirit has taken up and, and worked in our hearts all of these wonderful truths. We pray this so that we might leave this place more like our Savior, loving you more, ready to be steadfast, not running to and fro, not blown by every wind of doctrine, not scared, but people of confidence because our Lord is in his holy temple. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll sing. Thanks for listening to this audio sermon from the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. You can learn more about us by visiting our website, www.covenant-pca.com.